Welcome to Ikigai Stories. I'm Sam Yushio. The goal of this podcast is to showcase people who are living with intention, working hard to align actions with priorities, and ultimately to provide a platform of inspiration for those seeking to live a life rooted in purpose. Toussaint Bailey is the CEO of Enso Wealth, founder of the Just Listen Project, a leader in the impact investing space, and the ultimate uplifter. The word uplift captures the essence of Toussaint's mission to improve humanity, leveraging his vast professional and personal experience as a lawyer, a meditator, a CEO, and a black man in America. The epicenter of the uplift movement is rooted in anguish, confusion, and grief. While sitting in his office during the summer of 2020, Toussaint watched the video of George Floyd's murder. It was a defining moment and a wake-up call for our country, and for Toussaint, the moment was a tipping point. To process his emotions, he wrote an open letter to the Quietly Bothered, a persona that captured his internal state. He first posted it on Facebook, then posted it on LinkedIn, a move that was completely out of character for him, but a step he felt compelled to do. The result, in his words, were shocking. An outpouring of support provided a sense of hope, including a deep and meaningful conversation with a white coworker. Toussaint began to look at racism through the lens of grief and leveraging David Kessler's work on the stages of grieving, embraced the final stage to find meaning in grief. That insight serves as the bedrock of the Just Listen Project, a platform for vulnerable conversations about race by encouraging us all to take ourselves slightly out of the comfort zone, to foster open communication and embrace the 1% philosophy of incremental improvement on a quest to end racism. Toussaint's path is steeped in emotional intelligence. We discuss his career that includes over a decade as a lawyer before attending a mindfulness leadership retreat that provided the time and space to recalibrate his definition of success take inventory of his life's trajectory, and ultimately come to the conclusion that his days as a litigator were coming to a close. His keen sense of awareness unlocks the ability to understand what his energy is telling him. And as a CEO, he leverages that conviction in reinforcing an incredible organizational culture at Enso Wealth, a firm that helps clients translate wealth into fulfillment and places loving and trusting relationships as the cornerstone of their company ethos. Our conversation shifts to important topics of mental health and the concept of toxic false thriving. Too often, many of us, myself included, fall victim to projecting an image that's misaligned with our internal compass. Social media and the hedonic treadmill only exacerbate the problem to a point where many find themselves drifting without intention and true purpose. Summoning the courage to show up honestly authentically and vulnerable to judgment may be one of life's greatest challenges that simultaneously unlocks one of life's greatest gifts. Finally, since the time that Toussaint and I met to record this episode, there has been an increased awareness of Asian hate sparked by the killing spree in Atlanta that took the lives of eight people, including six women of Asian descent. True to form, Toussaint reached out to me in the spirit of uplifting and in a meaningful act of solidarity. A vulnerable conversation, a lot greater depth, and strengthen our bond dedicated to improving humanity and ending all forms of racism. 
I encourage everyone to embrace Tucson's message in the Just Listen Project. Take yourself out of the comfort zone, reach out to a person of color in your network, and ask them about their experience with racism. Compassionate conversations play a pivotal role in our ability to learn, understand, and improve. Now, please enjoy this uplifting episode of Ikigai Stories with Tucson Band. Tucson, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, first I'd like to say that just uh, you're a person who has incredible breadth and depth on a number of topics that resonate very deeply with me, probably as much as anybody that I've ever uh, ever met, ever come across. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation and start to unpack um, some of these inflection points in your life that have had a personal impact, but I think it's also there's a ripple effect that's that's impacting a lot of others. So what I'd like to start off with is the word uplift or maybe the verb uplifting. If you can describe what that means to you both personally and professionally, and then maybe give a little bit of backstory on uh, why that word is uh, so inspirational to you. Oh, uh, sure. Like there's nothing else I'd rather talk about. <laughs> so it's a, it's a good place to start for me. I, I, you know, I, I, as you know, um, or as you, you, you may know about me, that that's become my singular focus. Um, it hasn't always, hasn't always been as clear um, that that's my focus, but I think it's been my focus for a lot longer than I realized. And, and so to me, when I think of uplifting, I think of that verb in, in two ways, really. I think of uplifting as in the work that we do to uplift. And I think of uplifting as in how something feels. So how that work feels, how it feels to be in the presence of one another. So I think about both. I, I, I've been intentional about thinking about both and pursuing both um, as the singular focus of my professional career and my, and my personal life. Um, in terms of uplifting work, that's, that's culminated um, at least right now, in in my current impact investing venture, uh, launching later this year, Uplifting Capital, uh, appropriately named. Um, and, and, and that's, again, getting at both of those forms of uplifting. I, my feeling uh, around the form of uplifting that, that I've seen in impact investing is that there is uh, a focus on that former uplifting work um, and doing the work of making things better and and doing the work of uh, showing by metrics and, and data that that conditions are being uplifted or people are being uplifted. Um, but I, I also have been yearning to see um, a form of uplifting that I've experienced as I've gone along my own impact journey with more intentionality. And that's the, the internal returns on doing that uplifting work. That is the uplifting feelings, the uplifted feelings um, that, that may come by, by the person who's doing the impacting or, or those same feelings engendered in the person who's being impacted. And so I'm, I'm paying close attention and, and, and really kind of giving uh, those, elevating um, those uplifting feelings as, as something that should be pursued um, with purpose. Huh. Love it. Yeah, keep going, keep going. Yeah, no, no. So I, I was just gonna say that that that's sort of uh, uh, an experience I backed into from from starting out my own impact journey with intention um, in the financial services industry, which you've you've been a part of um, and continue to affect and work in. Um, sort of trying to uplift the industry 
set out to do that uplifting work, set out um, with the intention of, of making conditions better and have the unintended benefit of having an internal return um, of feeling uplifted and, and just sort of wanting to duplicate that, wanting to go toward that um, led to this, this uplifting capital journey. So when did the, the phrase uplift or uplifting, when did it become present? When was it something that was maybe uh, came from like a, an intrinsic feeling to an external vocabulary? When did you articulate that word? Yes, I, there's a there's a ton to to unpack there, but but it is it, it goes back to my grieving related to uh, the murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, like and then my own um, sort of grieving experience that that came up around that, um, and and I, I've. I've after the fact, started to recognize um, just kind of the the really intense and and complex uh, grief that I was that I was experiencing, both for the lives of those individuals, but also for um, my own uh, humanity uh, that that was that has been killed little by little um, through through uh, overt and and subconscious racism. Um, and so I, I, I went on this journey. What, what I think George Floyd's death was was the tipping point. Um, and I had uh, just been beat down um, learning that same day that I, I I'd watched uh, Christian Cooper, um, Amy Cooper uh, interaction in, in Central Park, where, where uh, for those who, who aren't familiar yet, you know, black man bird watching is harassed and then sort of all the, the force of, of policing uh, is attempted to be turned on him um, by, by someone who was not follow, a white woman who was not following the rules in the park. So that was dejecting. Then I watched the, the full duration of, of George Floyd getting killed all in the confines of my office. And I was just sent to, sent to a place that I haven't been in a professional context. Um, you know, I've, I've experienced racism outside of work. I've experienced racism inside of work, but I've been pretty adept at keeping those things compartmentalized until the summer of 2020. Um, and so I, I, I dipped, I, I, I really did. And, and then I, I, out of that place, I started to, to write publicly, uh, which, which is out of character about, about racism uh, um, and about racism specifically that I was experiencing um, and racism that I, I, I had seen others experience around me. Um, and, and, and the response was uh, shocking, <laughs> like, 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 you know, both the response in terms of me just laying these feelings to bear. Um, and then I, I started to write about um, hope, right? And, in, 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 you know, I, I wrote this open letter um, to, to the quietly bothered, I call them, you know, all, all of us who are bothered by seeing these things, but not really uh, taking the action that, that we probably uh, feel like we should be to impact these things. So I wrote this open letter questioning whether we were better than this and, and really uh, talked about the fact that we aren't currently, but have the potential to be better. And so from, from that place, I, I, I really started through my grief, I started to, to find meaning. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, the author David Kessler writes really are um, clear and eloquent and articulate and, and sort of useful about, about grief. 
he's one of the, the co-authors of the five stages of grief. And, and he, he lost his son and wrote about this sixth stage of, of finding meaning. And, and so I, I, as I went through, through my process um, and started to really attach uh, dehumanization and death um, as, as something that should be grieved. So, so this is when, when the, the, the out group um, sort of thinking starts to kill the, the person who's outside of that group. So, so as a black man, not, not necessarily being recognized as a human, um, you know, my, my humanity as I walk into these contexts where I'm, where I'm not recognized as such, or my full humanity or the full complexion of just Tucson is not recognized. I realized there's this sort of slow death. And as I started to recognize that, I started to look at these, these stages. So, so denial of that happening on a broad level and anger about that happening and then bargaining. Well, if I just kind of if, if I donate money here, or if I just do that, or if I post this, then, then maybe that'll fix things. Realizing that's not fixing things and then going to this place of depression and then ultimately getting to this place of acceptance. And then for me, it was, it was turning that to meaning. So I started to have these conversations that I was having on social media um, directly, start, starting with you know an all hands meeting at work. Um, and after that, having this in-depth conversation with a colleague about my own experiences with racism in the past, my ongoing experiences, and, and then asking him to kind of share out those experiences. And, and I, I realized this, this magic and healing that happened for me internally and, and this kind of movement um, and increased capacity for empathy that happened for him. And so I kept talking about that, started to talk about that publicly in something called the Just Listen Project, where we filmed some of these conversations. I've started to have these conversations and lead these conversations in organizations outside of my own. Um, and through doing this work of, of finding meaning, the, the, the word that I kept coming to that, that I was feeling was uplifted. Um, I, I just, I, I was the, the, the fruits for me, and I, I don't know if it's like this for, for everybody who's doing um, healing work or social justice work or whatever bucket that people would put these conversations in. But for me, um, I, I noticed this dual form of, of uplifting others and, and others communicating to me that they felt uplifted by this work. And, and I was uplifted. And so I just, I needed to, to go toward that. Um, and, and I became conscious of that. I started talking to others about the idea of becoming uplifted um, through alignment um, and, and um, sort of you know walking people through a process of coming face to face with um, grieving either dehumanization or other forms of human disconnection as loss um, and, and really coming to a place of acceptance of those things, really envisioning something better, um, kind of figuring out and, and really being uh, thoughtful about what capacities we each have. So I, I talk about those as our superpowers, what, what, what our superpowers are to affect the change, to go from where we are to what we envision. And then uh, realize, and then starting to think critically about um, bite-sized steps toward that. You know, I, I called it the one percent. Like, it, what does one percent closer to that vision look like? What does one percent better look like? Applying those superpower, your superpowers, to get from the dehumanization that you feel to the the humanity that you envision. And and all of this uh, has been a completely uplifting process for me. And 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 the communication back to me for people who have, who have started to do this work, whether it's um, organizations, whether it's personal friends, has been um, the, the feeling of being uplifted. So watching themselves uplift, but also feeling uplifted um, by doing this work and, and 
to me, it's just, it, it, it's, it's something that I, I've had to intentionally go towards to the point that, you know, my, my day job has been uh, and continues to be running a, a good sized wealth management firm. Um, but, but having, you know, the, this compartmentalized uh, role as CEO there and this kind of moonlighting impactors role um, was just uh, too much uh, sort of incongruence to, to be sustainable. So I've started to go toward this this impact investing venture with with the intent of bringing that uplifting focus and and what I know about financial services and the power of economics uh, together um, and, and to live just in more congruence. And so I'm, I'm, that that's sort of the journey in a in a long nutshell. <laughs> Very long <laughs> nutshell. <laughs> oh, that was that was incredible. That was incredible. So, can you um, unpack? the you know who who the person who Toussaint was before you watched those videos and how you approached professional personal um you know you kind of referenced some version of of like siloing right I think oftentimes we many of us do that um and then you watch the video and it 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 triggered a reaction and forced um an uh an awareness and acknowledgement internally that led to, well, probably wasn't healing initially. Like it was the five stages, right? Yeah. Going through yeah. the five stages. Um, but so to bring back to the question, how did you approach professional and personal life before? How did you approach it as you were bringing the Just Listen project to life? And how is that different or maybe even the same right now, like through those three phases. Can you unpack that a bit? I, I'll try it. That is a mind-blowingly good question. By the way, it's like, it's like I have to, I have to wrap, I have to wrap my head around that because there is this clear. I can see the markers um, clearly of, of the before and, and some of the starts. Um, you know, I, I, I place a high value on on mental health and, and mental healing, and some of the starts. Um, with, with uh, a, a really good therapist uh, helping me become aware of these fragmented parts. Um, but, but, and so I, I would say um, before this, in fact, so that there's a sort of subtle answer to your question. Before um, I had this uh, experience that, that broke down some of the walls uh, between these, these different um, versions of me or these different components uh, of me as a you know, a, a black um, professional who is um, very interested in self-awareness, also very interested in, in success. Um, uh, like, I, I, I would say, um, you know, there, there's these different managers or, or, or regulators of these different worlds I was living in, you know, and one of them, I, you know, I, with, with that therapist, there was a piece of, of me that we started to call Roots Tucson. Um, and that's, you know, you know spend most, much of my life um, in, in inner cities, connected to my, my very Black experience, mostly Black friends. Um, and then as I start to uh, become more successful in school and beyond school, uh, my, my world, uh, as I got more professional, my, my world, at least outwardly, became less black um uh you, you know and, and you know that's i I've spent uh, much of my professional career as a lawyer 
and, and very few lawyers at my law firm uh, were, were black, spent a good portion of, uh, of my career um, now, you know, in, in finance, um, and there's a dearth of, of black financial professionals. And so just within the professions, um, those worlds became less and less like the world from which I came. And the the sort of ways of being that that tend to make one successful or fit in in, in the professional worlds that I occupy look very different from from my my worlds of origin. Um, and so I started to I don't even like this is this sounds so much more conscious and there's so much more awareness around this than there is at the time at the time that I'm living this. But you know you have this mode and you know they call it code switching they call it. Um, I don't know what else they call it, but it's tr to me, the, the, the term I think of is code switching, um, which was done without intention, right? But you, you come in and you are this version of yourself, full, fully, your, fu fully myself. So I'm, I'm this version of myself that's professional. And I, I leave uh, work and, and there's this version of myself where I'm like, ha, you know, like I, yeah. get, to, I get to be like the, the, I get to speak my native language, right? Yeah. I get to be, I get to, it, there's no mask to take off. I have a very, uh, you know, I lead um, the firm where I am. We're a very accepting and open culture, but I was, um, you know, subconsciously sort of filtered or fragmented or, or, or squeezed. Uh, I think um, experiencing uh, particularly George Floyd's death, and I feel like there was probably this cumulative effect where there was like, bam, 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 you know, black man getting killed, black woman getting killed. And it's, it happens every day, but these were getting more publicity and, and, and more egregious than usual. And, and we as a nation kind of collectively experienced, you know, the weight of those things sort of adding up and, until the explosion. And so for me, my explosion before uh, people were in the streets was, was this explosion at work um, knocking these walls down. Where, where it was like, it, it felt worse to be uh, compartmentalized um, and inappropriate um, than, than to be uh, integrated and, and, and whole. And so I, 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 the first place I took to uh, with this conversation uh, about the effects of racism on me was, was Facebook, but then I quickly took to LinkedIn, which if you, if you saw my feed pre-George uh, Floyd, there's no mention of anything political. There's no mention of anything uh, related to social justice. You look at it since, that's all you see. Um, and, and so there was, there was this sort of um, roots to something like kicking, kicking the doors in and saying like, look, this is, I, I need to live here too. Um, there needs to be this mm -hmm. sort of integrated self. And I feel like um, there, the, the, the integration of the two both in my professional life and my personal life, ha has has gone has taken me from a place where um, I'm, I was not quite enough of a professional to fit in as professional Tucson because there's this component of Roots Tucson that's very strong and present. I, I was no longer quite enough of Roots Tucson because there's this professional component that that I've been living all these years, where like the muscle memory uh, of just my black experience had been diminished. Um, and, and integrating them, not only do I feel like I'm, I'm able to live fully as both of those things, but there's this transcendent place that I'm now in where I'm, where I'm just Tucson, you know, where I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm fully 
the connected roots wise, I'm fully connected professionally, but I'm not even trying to drop down and fit into either of those sort of roles. I'm in this transcended place. And that's where I start thinking about superpowers and what my unique voice is and really kind of bringing those roots, bringing the, 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 uh, the woo-woo <laughs> components of me that are kind of out of place in this very traditional financial services world, fully bringing those um, to the forefront in financial services, fully bringing my roots to the forefront so that I can actually connect with a lot of the the spaces that I'm intending to uplift. And like, it's just a more, it's been a, like since like knocking down these walls and really kind of, kind of li living in this integrated fashion, um, it's been a powerful place. Um, it's, it's just been a powerful place. Yeah. It's the, it's the, the hero's journey. So as you, as yeah. you came out of that, um, let's see. So as you came through the integration and, and moved into transcendence, well, maybe it's even before that. So getting into the integration is, is a, is a tough step, right? It's a really tough step. Um, and I, I don't know, would you consider that move into integration for many, like, uh, success, right? Like just coming into terms internally with, I have these different components of self and allowing those components of self to, um, to, to be able to live in harmony. When I think of what you're doing across all these different domains, and transcendence like i think of i i see a strong correlation with leadership and and doing something in service of others so if there are people who are out there I, so i'm, I'm just processing yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. you know where i'm going yeah, yeah. like is integration I, I success do. for for many yeah uh, I, so 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 um i think even so in, integration is kind of this congruent living that 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 sort of that's now done with intention that that that's happening kind of beautifully but the the messier piece of that really had had more to do with uh freedom and and yes and, and outward focus rather than inward um because like I, I would say the the first step at that integration was me saying uh regardless of what the consequences are professionally re regardless of what the feedback is i need my full voice in, in all its complexity to be heard. Um, I, I, I need it to be heard. I need it to show up as it is, um, sort of unfiltered. Um, and, 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 and so that, that was um, a transition from a place of how will I be seen um, to like, this needs to be said, both for me and, and for others, this needs to be heard. Like I need to be heard and I, in my representative capacity, need us to be heard and so there was that there, there was this uh place of um freedom both person personally for me but i also knew um as i was as i was speaking um to this experience that 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 freedom uh was was for for others as well um and, and i knew going first there could be people behind me who would feel empowered to speak to their own experience as well and so th that that was that was a step out of the very eye centered let me keep things very boxed very safe um and, and let me let me do everything i can 
to make sure that I'm showing up um, in a way that these people expect me to show up or this industry expects me to show up. So down at a, at a really tactical micro level, that moment before you hit click or before you click send on that LinkedIn post, can you talk about what led up to that point? Because I, I love the way that you phrase, there's a, there's, there's so much um, that you're saying. And, you know, every time we talk, I walk away with more energy and inspired. There's a lot of points where, where you and I um, connect philosophically. One is on this concept of 1% and taking yourself out of the comfort zone. And so I know there's connectivity in that philosophy or that ethos with the Just Listen Project. If we bring it back to that point where, you know, you're, you're processing all this and you've got your, your, your um, LinkedIn, Tucson LinkedIn before and Tucson LinkedIn after that point where you made that decision to, to transform who you are. Can you just break that down a little bit? Like what was, what did that look like? And, and how did you summon the courage to click the, click the mouse? Yeah. Um, so I've, I've, um, gotten to a place professionally in my, in my leadership journey, my professional journey where I respect what my energy tells me. Um, I, I expect, I, I respect, um, where I feel clearly misaligned or clearly aligned. Um, and leading up to that, I just had a, a visceral, um, energetic experience. So it was, it was, it was dejection, right? And, and it was this, it was this place of, of really, um, just feeling, um, a, a dip in, in energy and a sense of hopelessness that I haven't experienced many times in my life other than losing, you know, very close family members or experiencing things of that magnitude. Um, and so like I, I, something was speaking loudly to me. Um, and, and the question was, what was I going to do with that? Um, what, what my hands immediately did was just start to, to write about the experience. Um, and, and so I, I think I wrote it in a, in a document first. Um, and that this is, this is just kind of, this is what I felt. And I don't know whether I initially wrote that to be published anywhere or, or sort of like as a, as a journaling exercise, but I, as I read, as I read what I wrote, and I, I didn't write anything solution oriented initially or anything profound. I literally just wrote about about my reaction and, and about how disgusted I was, and then I wrote about um, my my very real um, uh, sort of struggle with what I was going to say to my three daughters when I walked in the house that night, who I'm always trying to fill with a sense of hope and 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 optimism about what the world is and who we are. And so I, I think I said something about like, I haven't, I, I don't know what to say to them at the dinner table about this. So I'll quietly see tonight. Um, and so that's, that's what I wrote. And when I saw those words, I knew that it was, it was, it felt worse to keep those with me and, and to keep, to keep my voice to myself than it felt to be heard. Um, and so the moment of courage was actually pushing those words out. And that was, that was my 1%, right? So, so actually my 1% was doing it on Facebook where, where mm -hmm. there's sort of this personal, where, where, where I feel a little bit more comfortable to do that. The 1% from there was doing it on LinkedIn. And I think that, that message I led with, I'm not sure if this is an appropriate message for this platform, 
but I need to be heard on this. And then there was, there was 20,000 views of that, of that post. And I didn't get a single negative response from that because I think it gave voice to what a lot of people were feeling, black people, non-black people, you know, all sorts of people of color, many white people. Um, and then the next day I, I started to write to the quietly bothered. And, and that was again, you know, that, that was the, the further 1%, you know, having, a, having had a night to sleep on it, like writing to quietly bothered black professionals like myself who have been quietly bothered for a long time, quietly bothered professionals of color, quietly bothered, uh, you know, white professionals or, or, or well-meaning people who have been on the other side of this experience and seen these experiences. And then the snowball just kept going. So, so, so the next, that, that next day was, you know, the same week um, when, when George Floyd was killed, the following Tuesday was, was an all hands meeting. And my 1% was conjuring up enough courage to talk about this now directly to the people who, who I worked with. And um, we do this one word check-in and my 1% was saying that I was distracted. Like, so, so being, a, a, you know, the CEO is supposed to show up and, and kind of lead through this stuff and, and, um, you know, be a source of strength and be a source and be, be a source of clarity for folks. I, I, I didn't want to be that, but, um, I, again, um, my, what I knew was right was to voice how I felt, uh, what I wanted to do was, was stay, was stay dead silent, get in and out of that meeting. But, but my 1% there was, was to give voice to the fact that I felt distracted and then talk to people about that, talk to people about my experience. And then I had a co conversation with a colleague after that. Who, who broke down crying about the fact that, you know, he had the opportunity to go to a protest and he didn't. And then we talked through that and that, that eventually led to this project where I sort of um, structured um, versions of that same conversation I had with my, with my colleague and then also took that conversation out and, and, and started to do some coaching of that conversation. Um, but yeah, I, I don't need, I don't, I don't know where, where, I, where I was going with that, but all of those are, are just sort of, the the snowballing of of this this micro act of courage of first feeling um then writing and then sharing and then sharing more and sharing more and sharing more and now that's yeah, what become, right? yeah I've, it's, I've it, become the kind of person who who does that stuff and it just now it's natural right now it's coded into the identity right yeah that's yeah right. um so there's a couple things that that you've talked about that I'd like to unpack a bit. So, um, so you're the CEO of a wealth management firm, right? Uh, and the way that I initially found you was very uh, unique. So there was a so I got an email from the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute about an upcoming event called "How Mindfulness and Emotional Intelligence Practices Support Equity and Inclusion at Work." And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. That's interesting. I, I maybe I'll check that out. And I, I saw the title, and registered for it, not realizing who was participating, who who the speaker was. So then I got the email that the you know the the reminder email, and I saw Tucson Bailey, CEO of Encel Wealth, and I was like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> this guy, <laughs> This is a, a wealth management um, and B, uh, you know, a black man in the CEO role at a wealth management firm talking about mindfulness and equity and inclusion. And my mind was blown. I was just completely captured. And so I watched that 
I participated in that event with, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of people around the world uh, where you talked with Rich Fernandez. And uh, ever since then, I've just grown such a, a tremendous appreciation for you and your journey and, and what you've set out, what you have accomplished and what you continue to set out to accomplish. And so I'd like you to talk about your your journey of awareness. Right. So how, how do you, because I think all of these things are, are connected in, in some form. Can you just talk about your, your process or, or what led you to, 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 to be, uh, in the search inside yourself leadership Institute event with Rich Fernandez talking about mindfulness? Yeah. And so, so you're, you're touching on, um, uh, and it, it's funny that you see all, all of those things and react like that. Cause I, I, I do too. And there was times when, I felt insufficient in every single category that you name, right? It, it, before you, before I embraced myself as um, equally all of those things, and also, you know, sort of none of those things, right? Just, just Tucson, you know, not, not quite sufficient as a, as a mindfulness practitioner, not quite sufficient as a diversity, equity, and inclusion um, speaker, not quite sufficient as a wealth management CEO. Uh, you know, not not quite sufficient, even as a black man, truth be told, right? Because of all those other things, in, in part. And, and so, um, coming to terms with me being some form of integration of many of those things, but but being none of those things in terms of how I'm defined, um, has has been a journey that I, I feel like I have to uh, mention because you know I, I've interacted with with the intersection of all those things in in different ways at different points of my life. Um, aware, awareness ha, has been under uh, underneath or, or or sort of wrapped around every single every single piece of this journey, and and I stumbled it. So I, I come from um, you know a, a mom who didn't mind being different, and and so she she was a, a meditator and a, and a and a sort of awareness teacher uh, back in the, back in the mid '80s, and that was her journey. That was. Uh, you know, somewhat passed on. To, it was nor it helped normalize those things for me, but that it it wasn't um, a practice that I adopted. You know, as a kid, and, and that carried through. Um, I although I do remember it, like looking back at those things and just feeling strange that my mom was talking about <laughs> this stuff in the eighties. Right? She used to. I, I remember as a, as a kid, we had before going to going to play outside. There was this tape called Healing Waterfalls, and you'd listen to this this guided. Uh, voice and it was probably 30 minutes long and half the time I fall asleep before I could get outside <laughs> and you'd look at these rocks of different colors and they would have these different feelings I'm like 12 or I'm like what what is this and who is my mom <laughs> right <laughs> I look back now and I'm, I'm super thankful for the seeds that got planted but that was, that was not my experience <laughs> with, with these things back then <laughs> fast forward <laughs> As a, as a lawyer, uh, I I uh, I came to my own journey. I came back to my own journey with with uh, mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and awareness intentionally. Um, and so, I, I, I some of this was uh, directed to improve uh, my own leadership and professional skills. Um, you know, I was coming into partnership at my law. Actually, I was a recent partner um, at, at my law firm, and I was being asked to lead more things, and I was kind of managing more people whether that was clients or, or other attorneys. And I wanted to develop these soft skills, right? I just, I always heard people talk about soft skills. And so uh, I saw something, um, you know, somehow I came across this 
uh, Emotional Intelligence Leadership Institute. I was like, oh, that sounds like soft skills. Um, and so I signed up for a two-day course at Search Inside Yourself Emotional Intelligence Leadership Institute. Um, and being a kind of hard-driving attorney, before that, I bought the book <laughs> so I could read the book before I got to the two-day course. And I like reading the book was the first time I realized, oh gosh, this is mindfulness-based. There's like a whole bunch of meditation practices and stuff that's at the base of this. I signed up for the course. I may as well go through and actually try to do this stuff. Um, and so I, I, I did, and I picked up that journey. And at the same time, I, you know, I had a, a friend whose girlfriend was was kind of coaching um, mindfulness, and she was doing Qigong and and some other things. And she was kind of coaching me at the same time through this journey. This is all, I think, early or late 2015. Um, and and so I, I went to that course, um, and and you know, I think that was the that was the first that two day course where I stayed overnight was the first time I had that much space from my professional obligations since, you know, graduating from law school, probably 10, 10 or 11 years before that. With that space, I, I became aware of this kind of background dissatisfaction. I was working at a great law firm um, in a great position, but there was a background dissatisfaction with where I was that I hadn't had time to get in touch with because I hadn't given myself sufficient space. I, I, I actually got in touch with it there it was back. It was it was at that conference that I I first had the thought that gosh I'm, I I don't think I'm a lawyer anymore, um, and it took me another year before that actually played out. They they have you do this difficult conversation, uh, practice this difficult conversation at those conferences, and one of those was me practicing a difficult conversation with this lawyer who I just hired into our office explaining to her that like, oh yeah, you know, I, I gave you this dream and I showed you this vision for how this office is going to grow and all the great stuff we're going to do, but I'm leaving. <laughs> like, so that was the conversation I practiced. Over the next, by, the, by the end of the next year, she had left and she's actually gone on to do all this great stuff in financial services. Uh, her name's Christina Browning and her, and her husband, Amon Browning. They have, they're like these YouTubers and they're, they're kind of famous for, for what they do in personal finance. And it's just, it was surprising that she left and she actually moved to Japan. Uh, left and moved to Japan, uh, uh, before I had time to have the conversation. So she had the courage to leave. That sort of brought this sense of, of, of freedom for me and, and reminded me that I had had these feelings. Um, and so uh, I, uh, I started to, you know, kind of gravitate toward uh, wealth management and, and really structuring uh, a wealth management firm that's now become Enzo Wealth um, with, with a good friend and brother-in-law um, and continued to pull awareness through um, at the from the very start of that company's culture. So, the very I think within a few months we took our whole leadership team, our, our initial leadership team, to one of those search inside yourself uh, two day courses, and we all went through that. And awareness became one of our sort of core values. So I get to speak that and live that on a regular basis. And I think that awareness was part of what what allowed me to see my internal experience uh, last summer when when. When I went to that place, uh, you know, watching uh, what happened to George Floyd and watching what happened to Christian Cooper and, and, and the others before, the awareness was what allowed me to see what was happening um, to me internally as I started to have these conversations and, 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 and see what the internal, what the uplift was, what the internal uplift was for me. And also to kind of sense into the uplift uh, for the people who I was in, in connection with about these issues. Um, and so that continued through and, and, you know, awareness is also a piece of, of me feeling the incongruence between me 
solely being a CEO of a wealth management firm and then me talking about impact on the side. And so that the awareness of that incongruence leads to this, this last step of really thinking about how to intentionally impact in a way that intentionally um, seeks that internal uplift as well as the external uplift. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take you take you back a bit. So on the at that at that event that that two day event that that uh, search inside yourself event. Up to that point, you were about a decade in as a lawyer. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. So at you you go through this. You, you have this opportunity to pump the brakes, right? You have this opportunity. You've you've you're making space. You're drawing. Uh, conclusions about who you are and what's important to you, what your values are, how you want to live with more intention. Um, but it took a year ish to make <laughs> that, right. to make that change. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I, one of the the goals of this, of this podcast is to showcase people that are living in with intention. And I think there are, especially now in, in a, you know, in a global pandemic with the world is clearly changing in, in many ways or has changed in many ways. I think there are a lot of people that have this kind of incongruence between who they are, who they want to be, um, and are trying to find the, some type of alignment, trying to find balance, trying to find the courage to take a step. So in that moment, if you go back to that moment, when you, when the light bulb went off and you said, you know what, uh, I think that the the lawyer phase is coming to a close, but it didn't come to a close immediately. Can you just talk through how you eventually made that decision to leave law? And um, because I think oftentimes everyone's looking for this lightning bolt spark of inspiration, and then they immediately make a, a significant change. It's not this one um, percent kind of take myself out of the comfort zone, agile mindset, you know, systems-based learning. It's like, I'm either doing it or I don't. And then I don't do it and I become uh, defeatist, right? Uh, like I'm, I feel like I've, I've failed. So can you unpack that, those, that time frame a bit? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what happened at this, what, what is essentially a mindfulness, um, retreat or at least it was the closest thing i had now i realize it's not a pure mindfulness retreat it was the closest thing i had up to that point to this um you know a, a retreat where you go and get space uh, was i became aware of of this um internal dissatisfaction uh, but i didn't i didn't know any other form of success up to that point um and i didn't know um my professional life i didn't know my adult life without success, right? So, so like success had become this, this form of success. Um, so, you know, you graduate from law school, you get a good job at a good, at a good law firm, you work hard for that, you kind of make your way up the professional track and then you become partner and then you become a promising partner uh, who, who's eventually gonna, you know, do bigger things at the firm. And, uh, you know, I was, I was at that level where I'm starting to get more responsibility. And so I didn't, I never questioned whether uh, up to that point, I hadn't questioned whether that success was a form of success that I wanted or that was healthy or that was serving me. 
that was just the form of success that I'd set out to have. Um, and, and I had it. Um, and so the idea of walking away from the only form of success that I'd ever sought felt so vulnerable and so um, irrational, <laughs> right? Yeah. It felt so yeah. irrational that uh, just because I sensed that I was dissatisfied didn't mean that I knew what satisfaction looked like on the other side or whether there, were, there, whether there was a different form. And so it, start, it, it arose as a feeling of dissatisfaction. Um, what, what really, I think, kind of transpired over the next year was I, I really became aware of um, what the promise of a future, um, of, of the future that I was looking at um, was. And so, you know, there, I, was, I was in the, in the office with one of the more senior partners who, who, who was sort of my best case scenario. And as I looked at him, I, I, I didn't want that. And so over the next year, um, I, part, I had conversations about designing something different inside the law firm, right? Like I was, was doing well um, developing business. I was doing well uh, kind of relating to clients. Like I just, I was a litigator. I didn't really want to fight people. Like it just, it's just not in keeping with kind of my way of being. I became exhausted of that. So I had conversations about, oh, maybe I can, you know, I, I see this clear value add and maybe we can design and, and like, you know, the law firm kind of model is, is probably a little too traditional to kind of, at least this one was to, to bring that sort of innovation to. And so, you know, I, I kind of kept on and part of it was as, as easy it was to have, to have that difficult conversation with this associate who I brought in um, conceptually to actually have that conversation was, was something that was just near impossible for me. It was really, really difficult for me to imagine disappointing this young woman who was doing great at the firm and who had so much promise, but we were kind of inextricably linked in terms of what we were going to do professionally. And so that was a barrier. And then, and then she had the conversation with me. So there was some freedom uh, that came there. And then I think, I think ultimately I, I just uh, got to a place. It's almost like, you know, starting the just listen project where it felt heavier to continue to um, exist safely um, in, in, in the dissatisfaction I knew um, than to step out to, to the unknown. And so I, I, the, the first step was um, really starting to, to study um, the, the wealth management space and, and design what I thought was an innovative business model for bringing together um, some financial advisors who had been kind of loosely collected. And so I started to do the research and study that and, and came in and, and talked to them without any intention of that going anywhere. And, and I ended up getting hired on as a consultant. And then um, they asked for more and more of my time. So I had a conversation with my law firm about giving up my partnership, which I ultimately did and, and kind of stayed on as an attorney. And then that got consumed by the work that I was doing. And I was elevated to, to CEO and, and brought another partner in to take my seat at the law firm. But all of that happened <laughs> like in, in, in very small chunks, um, both the awareness and then the, also the execution. So let's, let's talk about Enso Wealth. Um, which, so you came into that role in 2017, is that Correct. right? Approximately yeah. around 2017, which is kind of when I was departing, um, financial services, um, in that stage. And, you know, we've, we've talked in different conversations about, uh, emotional intelligence and design thinking and mindfulness and meditation and, 
there are very few that I've very few firms that I've come across that embrace this at a level beyond just, you know, like a, a marketing material to clients, actually embedding it within the culture of the organization. And so can you talk about um, just, can you talk about Enso Wealth first and your focus on fulfillment and then how that finds its way into the culture and the ethos of the employee experience? Yeah, Enzo, Enzo Wealth is an organization whose mission is translating wealth into fulfillment. So the, the, the firm was formally, I think, formed in, in February um, by uh, the first four advisors who, who joined. I came on um, shortly after that, although I'd kind of been in talks about structuring it, um, you know, a little bit later in 2017, um, and really thought about how that, tra- so translating wealth into fulfillment really up to that point was thought of as something that was client facing. And, and for me, that couldn't be done without translating wealth management into fulfillment. So the work that we did into fulfillment um, to sort of fill our own bucket first and then go out. And so uh, my first kind of order of business coming on as both consultant and CEO was to think about what fulfillment looked like within the walls of the firm and, and what that meant. And so, so over time, um, we um, developed uh, this, this kind of framework for what we believe the most fulfilling experiences are, the most kind of fulfilling outcomes are. Um, it's now encapsulated in something that we call the, the waterfall. Um, and it, and it's, it, it really was an iterative sort of process to develop it. But we call it the waterfall because it starts with one value, which um, leads to the next, which leads to the next, which leads to the next. So they're in, in order of priority and also what we think is, is sort of the sequence um, based on our belief that fulfillment is a process, right? Not, not, a, not a destination. Um, and that process starts with loving and trusting relationships. And so for us, our first uncompromisable, uh, non-negotiable is loving and trusting relationships. Um, if there's anything that that compromises those, then it's it's sort of unacceptable. Um, and, and that's whether those whether relationships are loving and trusting and, and sort of coming into the organization or going out of the organization, everything should be done um, for the purpose of promoting those loving and trusting relationships. Those relationships lead to um, a, a container for self-actualization for all of us. Um, and so we believe we, we think about self-actualization in terms of uh, self-mastery and self-awareness, or I should say those the other way around, self-awareness and then and then self-mastery. So loving trust and relationships leads to self-actualization. And then we get to what we're trying to accomplish for the world. Um, and that's co-creation and collective impact. Um, and so that's the sort of third step in how we're seeking fulfillment. And from co-creation and collective impact comes personal gain with gratitude. Um, and so it, we we think that the personal gain that comes from going through that framework is one that engenders kind of more gratitude than starting at personal gain and then trying to sort of create relationships out of that or create. And so, and so we, we, that, that waterfall is our sort of yardstick. It's our framework. When, when we get in um, really heated discussions where where we ask each other, are we putting number four, number one here? Are we taking things in right order? Um, We think about um, kind of how we, uh, implement those values in our own interactions. And so when we're talking about our meetings at work or we're talking about um, interactions with, um, you know, 
partner staff were thinking about how to promote the most loving and trusting relationships. Like one example I'd, I'd think of is we do these, we used to do when we had these all day meetings was these questions of the night. So we'd do our meetings and then we'd always go to dinner uh, after the meetings when that kind of thing was okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And we'd, we'd go around and we'd do these really kind of um, introspective questions of the night. And we'd have one person answer those at a time. So really you're, everyone's engaged with that one person. We can't do that anymore, but we still um, start out our, our monthly town hall meetings with a dinner question. And there, there will be, there'll be like these kind of non-traditional dinner. I think our, our one of our, our dinner questions in February was um, about who in your life uh, professionally and personally uh, you're most adept at loving and, and what do you think would happen if you showed that kind of love to yourself? Uh, and, mm. and, and so, so we, we talked about self-love and we, we go all the way around and then we get into these and we, we save a little bit of time for work, but that's the kind of space that we're carving out. That's, that's who we want to be um, as an organization. I think that's why people come and, and why people stay. And, and uh, the, the um, sort of failure to um, not live up to those values because we're all on a journey, but, but when there becomes clear signs that somebody is not seeking those values or that personal gain is more important, those are the only reasons why we've ever had to ask people to leave the organization. So it's, we, we lead with, with those values actively. When you have a, a very constant cadence that heightens the, the, the awareness of those values, like so you're doing this on a monthly basis, is that what you said, the, right. the dinner the, conversations? The dinner like it kind of monthly. shines a light. Right. Yeah, yeah. The dinner questions monthly, but we do we do weekly um, we do weekly board meeting, weekly partners meeting where we have um, kind of a light version of that where we're we're doing a check in. Like I, I particularly now um, in in this uh, remote working environment, like kind of holding space for intentional inefficiency is what I call it, and, and making sure that we're we're creating the water cooler, um, but but with intention. So so putting intention around promoting loving and trusting relationships and, and vulnerable sharing and empathetic listening. And yeah, we'll, we start those, those monthly meetings with a, uh, with a kind of uh, arriving exercise, mindfulness exercise. Yeah. 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 And that's, that includes all, all employees at Ento. That's every, this is that, like, that, that's everybody. Yeah. That's everybody. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Um, and you call it intentional inefficiencies? Is that what you called it? That, that's what I call those. First. It's it's hard for me to hold that space because <laughs> we are, we're we're an, we're an organization, right? But it's uh, yeah, that's what I call whatever I put at the front of the meeting um, for the purpose of strengthening our bonds. Um, that has nothing to do with work. Like really making sure okay. yeah. we're holding we're holding space yeah. for, for the sole reason um, to to kind of strengthen our our personal connections with one another. Yeah, that's incredible. So can you talk a bit about your your leadership style? And so it's connected to to this. And I'm curious about how much of this was organically created by, you know, the founding members of Enso, uh, um, or just like the core constituents that were there in 2017-ish when, when it was started, and how much it has grown since then. Like, did you all come in with the same... Uh, philosophy and perspective on the waterfall. Maybe the waterfall wasn't clearly articulated back then, but it was. It was all inside of all of you, and you dialogued, social, <clears throat> excuse me, socialized to bring it onto paper. 
Um, yeah. What did that look like? It, there was an openness to this, um, to this form of leadership. So it, the, the waterfall wasn't clearly articulated back then. The waterfall actually got clearly articulated prior to a, a difficult conversation um, and, a, and, and sort of a, not a contentious meeting, but a meeting where we knew we would be hashing out some work issues. Um, so at that level of creation or co-creation, so articulating that relationships were the most important thing and our own development was the most important thing was the thing that gave birth to the waterfall. But um, I, I wrote about uh, a lot of the culture that was required. So we have a, a unique business model um, that leaves a lot of kind of entrepreneurial freedom with the, with the partners of the firm, including the ability to kind of come and go uh, if, if, if it was their desire to come or go. So coming in, I wrote what we now call the, the manifesto that, that articulated a lot of the culture that would be required to keep people here. And, and that, was, that was a culture that um, the, the, the four partners who preceded me were already kind of interested in having. I think I, I articulated that. I think I was more kind of clear and purposeful about saying kind of this is who we are. Um, and, and I think I had a clear sort of vision for how that would play out in the organization. But my my ideas about this culture. So I, I, in that manifesto, a lot of what I wrote about was enlightened self-interest and how uh, it would be better for the whole if we all kind of took this um, this posture of of giving up um, what a lot of a lot of people professionals like kind of seek to grab at um, for, for the growth of the organization, for the health of the organization, and then ultimately there's this kind of form of faith that that will be good for what, what's good for the organization will be good for the individual. So I, I wrote about all that, and it, it was it was these kind of heady um, uh, emotional intelligence uh, anchored concepts, but I, I expected to be um, sort of uh, weird <laughs> going into the meetings where I was kind of unpacking this, and, and really there was a lot of there was a lot of alignment to the point that there's just a lot of kind of head nodding and, and appreciation for me articulating, but there wasn't like mind necessarily mind blown. Like, like this is the first time that we've ever kind of thought about any of this stuff. I think this was the experience that they all wanted, which is how they um, ended up hiring a completely um, inexperienced <laughs> former lawyer as their CEO. Like, I, I, I have no idea that this guy knows what he's doing in terms of running a company, but I like how he sounds. <laughs> so yeah, that weird feeling was was not knowing the thought bubbles that were in their heads but as soon as you brought that to the table then you yeah. realized it wasn't weird at all that, yeah and i i had I, I, yeah it, it was and it's it, like I, I not having talked about all this in the same conversation i really do connect it with um you know what happened with the just listen project with talking about this stuff to a room that I anticipated, or a room or a social media platform that I anticipated may receive this one way and was actually waiting to hear from me, right? Like, so there was there was a lot more people than I realized who were waiting to hear from me. And what, what I expected to be a conversation where I would be pulling people along at Enzo initially was really a conversation where these, where these uh, four uh, partners were waiting to hear um, what I had to say. So when you look out into the future and we'll say, future is undefined. You can say to, that could be tomorrow, that could be forever. You know, what are you most excited about? What are you most hopeful for with all the different initiatives that, that you're leading and engaging with? 
<laughs> it'll be full circle. Like the, the word that, that comes to mind is of course up, uplifting, but it, it's the, it's, I, there's, there's plenty of focus on, on the, the uplifting work um, and, and kind of the, you know, doing the uplifting with our hands, but uh, uplifting feelings and really uh, kind of making that the focal point um, in, in elevating the practice of working toward uplifting feelings and uplifting others and helping others experience those feelings. Like I'm, I'm most excited about that and, and to do that professionally, to do that, um, you know, in partnership with different professionals who I've met all along my, my, my career journey um, to, to prove that, that it, that can be sort of financially rewarding um, and, and, and sort of to, to, to prove kind of the, the, conscious capitalist uh, support for that. And so, you know, start, starting an organization as, as uh, a, a, a B Corp and, and like doing uplifting work and, and talking about um, the intent to feel uplifted uh, by that work and, and kind of shedding the light on what people are experiencing internally and promoting that internal experience, um, whether that's through storytelling like this or, or um, other mechanisms, just like however that that transpires right now it's it's through uplifting capital and, and impact investing it's also continues to be through Enzo wealth management I don't know what it will what will kind of spawn from that those endeavors in the future but like I, I know the wrapper is is this sort of uh, kind of dual uplifting what what have you learned most about yourself over the course of the last so we're we're up at about you know one year since the world shut down with COVID, what, uh, what have you learned most about Toussaint in the last 365 days? Wow. That's what have I learned most? That I, I, I'd have to say that, you know, it's this, I talked about the concept of, of, of superpowers, but who I am transcends any of the buckets or categories or or like concepts that I, I previously thought to fit in. And, and I am most useful to the world when I'm living in that transcendent space. Um, and I'm most and I'm, I'm most aligned internally when I'm living in that transcendent space. It's powerful. That's really powerful. Well, so if, if there's somebody out there that's at a, at, an, at a crossroads at an intersection, that's trying to, that's grappling with a decision, right? And maybe it's some of the decisions that you've talked about at these different milestones or checkpoints in life. So there's a philosophical component to it. Like, like how would you encourage them philosophically to approach it, but then also a very tactical approach? Like what message would you take to that person who wants to change but is stuck and doesn't know where to start yeah so so for me like what, what comes up is that um your voice is more important than you think um and so so i'm using that term voice broadly right so so not just kind of the words you speak but sh showing up as as who you are um is more is more important than you think and there are more people waiting to see you and, and hear from you, you than, than you realize. So not not 
um, not see you and hear you as um, as a category that you're trying to fit into or not see you or hear you as as some kind of filtered version of yourself. But there are many people who are waiting to see you and hear from you. Um, it, it's sort of the philosophical that's that's what comes up philosophically. That's been my my experience and that's actually been the experience of others around me like my 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 wife included anyone who's had sort of the courage to step out there and show themselves um i think that humans connect with with humans right and in in, in in all our kind of complex humanity and so i i would offer that that piece of philosophy um tactically it, it comes back to that one percent like i i, I didn't i didn't jump here I, I like baby stepped here sometimes reluctantly um sometimes dragged my own self here <laughs> so, so yeah no, honestly so, so i think the, these little micro acts of courage um yeah. ha, had a compound effect um and, and until i became the kind of person who who acts courageously um so so like these little micro acts of courage became a habit um, and, 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 and so I, I would say start as, as small as you can reasonably get those acts of courage um, and sustain those acts of courage. Um, and so for me, it was literally hitting send on a Facebook post and then hitting send on a LinkedIn post and then talking about the same thing in the safest, most vulnerable possible space I can think of where I'm the boss <laughs> and then talking about that a little bit more where I'm not the boss. Right. And so and then getting on camera and talking about that. Um, with the Just Listen project, where I I never done anything on camera, right? But but like the, like filming that through a, a, a shaky voice and and like I think I had like a huge kind of cystic bump on my face. I didn't <laughs> want to film it that day because I'm like, what? I've never filmed anything, and like my my whole face is changed because I have this kind of ingrown hair on my face. But like screw it, like I gotta say this and I got it's gotta be said. And I you know I'm like calling the video editor. Can you edit that out? Like that thing's like. It's going to be distracting. And he's like, oh, I'll do what I can. But anyway, like that was like, we, yeah. I, I laugh at it now, but God, yeah. terrifying. And then it took yeah. me a week. So that was done a week before I hit send on the video, right? So it's like all these little, but the, the, the acts of courage got bigger and bigger and bigger. Now I'm, I'm comfortably kind of talking about my, my experience with you here on, here on a podcast that's going to go out to, to, you know, the public. And so without flinching, right? But, but, I became this person by, by habit. Yeah. Micro acts of courage. That's, that's uh, I love that, that phrase. That's a, that's a very powerful phrase. You know, I think, I think if, okay, so it, I think there's, there, there is a, a population, a segment of the population out there and in particular, a segment of the population that's in the wealth management industry, like the typical demographic within the wealth management industry that would would listen to this conversation and if they're listening to it by themselves, it would resonate. If they're listening to it with a peer, I think there is fear of accepting a lot of the principles that you're espousing, a lot of the principles that you and I discuss and, and the principles that I think you and I both believe is right. So one thing that you talked about is so we haven't gotten into this too much. We've, we've danced around it, but it's mental health, mm. right? And you talked, you mentioned therapist. And so, you know, when I look out at the industry and, and whether it's the industry or just men in general, 
masculinity, um, and in particular, if you start to narrow down into the wealth financial services industry, it's um, you know it's very it's kind of that that frame that you were talking about earlier, where you know you just drive and drive and drive, and success is measured by hitting a goal and getting a certain level of compensation. And you know, at some point along the way, many people feel like they they kind of lose themselves in there, and they're just trying to hit that next. You know, it's a hedonic treadmill. They're just trying to hit that next goal. And somewhere along the way, they just look back and like, where am I in this? And so can you talk about just mental health and and shining a light on it's okay to to talk to other men about stuff like this? It's okay to talk on a podcast that I have a therapist. Like it's just clearing the air for, um, you know, successful professionals that are grappling and have this thing in their gut, but just can't come to terms with that reconciliation between uh, the identity that's external facing and who I am and probably who I want to be to, yeah. to, to meet those two. Oh, so, so actually my, my wife uh, is, is, a, is, she's a mom coach. So she coaches, she coaches mom. And we talk about this in that context. Um, and, and, and the, the term that comes to mind for me is this, this toxic, um, false thriving, right? Or this, this kind of mm-hmm. false thrive, like this, this toxic projection of doing great um, when a lot of us are struggling, like particularly now, like and it's harder to hide um, in the pandemic. We're inside each other's houses. But like a lot of us, even before this, were really struggling, at least at times. And so, so for, for me, um, as a leader, I consider it an important part of my work to go first in creating an environment of, of vulnerability where people feel safe to say that they're, that they may be having a hard time or, or, or that they might not have all the answers. And I do think it's the, if the, if, if us as leaders don't do it, nobody's going to do it. One of the things that, that I've asked when, so when, when I'm going into organizations to talk about um, the, the Just Listen project and really I call it like, like humanizing, rehumanizing um, organizations and interactions is the, the first pre-work is, is I send folks this, this Brene Brown short video um, where she talks about uh, myths around vulnerability and, and myths around vulnerability being weakness and really kind of explains how vulnerability translates into courage. But then I asked one of the, the influential leaders from the organization, and, and hopefully it's the leader of the organization, um, to offer a vulnerable story or a vulnerable sharing. Because I think one, one, of the, one of the nice things about vulnerability is that it's contagious. Um, if you start it at the right place, it beget, one person's vulnerability begets more vulnerability. And if you start at the top, that happens. And so for me, yeah, like, I, I consider it a really important part of my job when we're going around with that one word check in to say things like, yeah, you know, I, I, I didn't, I, 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 after the week that we had last week, I, I can't even think I can't, I can't focus. I can't work. I can't do a thing. I'm distracted <laughs> and I'm actually paralyzed. I'm, I'm, I'm paralyzed. I don't know what to do. I've written about this on social media uh, um, and I, I can't, I, I, I'm going home early because I can't function right now. I, I, I need, I need your help. Like I, I, to me, like, if I don't say that, then 
then the people of Enzo Wealth are, are quietly suffering and feeling the same thing. And that's what I, that's what I found. When, when I said that out loud, they said us too, right? But yeah. if I don't say that, that never gets said. And so I, I'm passionate about um, stopping the, the pretending to, to be thriving and this kind of veneer of not only success, but like this veneer of, of well-being and fulfillment. And like, yeah, yeah, my life's going great. Like it's not, it's not helpful to anyone. I'm going to get this wrong. You probably know it right off the top, but Brene Brown says vulnerability in others and vulnerability in self. Yeah. Different, right? Others yeah. is like. V- vulnerability right? in others is courage. Vulnerability in self is weakness. Yes. Right. Like yes. that's, uh, yeah. that's, that's how, that's our relationships, our general, the default relationship with vulnerability. God, that's great. L- listen to, listen to how he shows up and shows himself or she shows up and shows herself like vulnerability in ourselves is weak. Yeah. 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 Um, well, this is incredible, Toussaint. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and this we could have a, a multi series episode in this. <laughs> um, can you describe where people can find you, where they can find out more information about everything that you've talked about? Yeah. Um, so, so the easiest place to find me, and I, I, I wish I was better about posting on you know, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, like LinkedIn is probably where I'm, where I'm most active. Um, right now, the only thing you'll find on LinkedIn, I don't know when this is coming out, but you'll find information about Enzo Wealth. You'll find some information about the Just Listen project. Uh, connect with me there and stay tuned for information about the Uplifting Capital launch, which is happening this year, but has not happened uh, yet, at least not publicly. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty accessible through, but primarily through LinkedIn. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Toussaint, for your time and thank you for sharing and thank you for your vulnerability and your courage and your leadership and everything that you're doing out there uh, to make the the world a better place 1% at a time. Uh, I really appreciate your time and sharing your stories. I'm, I'm grateful for the space and it's always like an absolute joy to connect with you.